This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Anxiety among investors over a full, uh, full blown trade war, possible full blown trade war. Uh, given the U.S. between rhetoric, uh, given the rhetoric between the U.S. and China, how is this starting to affect markets? Of course, it started uh, with the G7 and then eventually went to China. Uh, the gov- uh, the uh, president of the United States points to, at his own peril, really, the stock market as a gauge of his success. Let's bring in Marvin Ryder, business professor at Groot School of Business, McMaster University. He is with us now. Marvin, thanks for the time. Always appreciate it. Glad to be here. So Donald Trump does point to the stock market at times to uh, gauge his success. How is all of this instability affecting the stock markets? Well, I'm going to answer your question, but here, here's the strategy I'm going to suggest for the summer of 2018. We should all take a tip from Melania, and when Donald speaks, we should all say, I really don't care, <laughs> do you? We would be so much better off. So you know just... what, Marvin? That's You know, we have this all wrong. Everybody's getting all cranked out about the jacket. Maybe it's just, maybe it's her talking to the Donald, not exactly. to the rest of the world. Exactly. I never she even got... thought of that. That's perfect. You know, they aren't together all that much. She yeah. Doesn't... She doesn't tweet, so this is a chance. So let's just talk about stock markets for half a second. Stock markets are supposed to represent the future value of all the companies listed on them. This is a common mistake people make. They think that it represents the value of these companies today. No, it represents the future value. So stock markets react to news, whatever the news happens to be. If oil prices go up, then they take a look at those companies that depend upon oil, and they adjust their value. Or if... You know, um, we find gold, find a big track of gold, and those companies who deal with gold, they adjust the price accordingly, technology, etc. Typically, presidents, leaders like prime ministers, etc., and finance ministers are very, very, very careful about anything they say because every word they use is carefully screened and parsed to see if there are hidden meanings or extra meanings that could affect the future value of companies, and that sends stock markets into a tizzy. What presidents normally do is speak very blandly. They try to calm the market, reassure the market. Nothing big is happening. There's nothing to see here. Move on. But Mr. Trump seems to be a man who likes to throw rocks into ponds and cause ripples, and we call those ripples volatility. And, and what the market absolutely hates is uncertainty. Now, again, this comes as a shock to people, Scott. You know, if there's something bad, if there's bad news and it's certain, the market can easily adjust to it. What it doesn't like is when it doesn't understand what the implications of the news is. Okay, there's a a hurricane coming, but is it going to be bad? Is it going to be good? When is it going to hit? And until they have certainty, the market just goes crazy. All this volatility, buying and selling, it really hates uncertainty. So what has happened? Trump has, has really, and again, we Canadians, I don't think we're really getting the right perspective on this, Mr. Trump has launched a trade war with the world. It's not just Canada he's talking about. It's not just Mexico. He's talking against you know, tariffs to the European Union, to Japan, to India. He's got China in his sights. And the world's stock markets are saying, what the hell is going on here? We've not seen anything like this. You have to go back 70, 75, 80 years in American history to see someone fighting a trade war on as many fronts as Donald Trump is doing, and and we just don't know what it's going to mean. For instance, this week, the Mercedes Corporation, Daimler Corporation, Mm. announced that they thought their earnings were going to be lower because they make automobiles in the United States that they ship to China. This is a German company makes automobiles in the United States that they ship to China, but because of China's new tariffs on American-made automobiles, Daimler, the German company, is going to be affected. This is how complicated the world is, and that's why the stock market doesn't like anything that's going on right now. How does Donald Trump position this when he, at his own peril, will often point to the stock market? Well, he certainly did during his uh, first few months in office because the stock market was uh, was continually going up for a period. Um, He would point to that. How does he position this? Well... Again, you know, we don't live in Donald Trump's world. You and I live in a world where we can look back and we make comparisons and we say, well, last year you said this, and now this year you're saying this. Uh, Mr. Trump, for good or bad, lives completely in the moment. So if you remind him of what he said last year, he'll first say, I never said that. And then number two, he'll say, it doesn't matter because this is what I'm looking at now. 
And, and again, unusual for a leader to be like this, but this is the way Donald Trump's world, it is, it is totally, what am I thinking at this moment it has nothing to do with the past. Does it matter what his world is? We still have to react to it. Well, again, I think that's an interesting question. I go back to, you know, I really don't care, do you? Uh, I, I think uh, when I was in Europe recently, a strategy that most Europeans are now taking, and they said, Marvin, I'm, I, I've never thought I'd live to say this, but I am learning to ignore the president of the United States. It's a bit like, let's suppose the president of, let me pick an obscure country, president of Ghana made some sort of an announcement. We would normally in Canada just pretty much ignore them. And, and here in the United States, oh, the world's most powerful leader, the leader of the biggest economy in the world, I can't, I can't ignore him. Well, you know, maybe you should learn to just pull back a little bit, mm-hmm. because he's not like any other president. And in fact, what we've seen with this president, he will make these pronouncements, and, and other people within his own administration uh, reverse them or counteract them or say something completely differently. We don't. Uh, it's, the, it's the most confused administration I've ever seen because they don't all seem to be playing from the same songbook, and the songbook can change from day to day. So uh, what he's doing to me, in my world, I would say he's truly damaging the office of the prime uh, of the president. Yeah. By contrast, that with uh, Justin Trudeau, and I know there's many people who don't care for Justin Trudeau, but he's consistent. Whether you like him or not, Mm -hmm. he is consistent. I know exactly where Justin is coming from. Thus, when he makes a statement, he reinforces all the statements he's made before, and I know where he's coming from. Donald Trump's inconsistency is causing people to lose faith in that office. You know, it'd be like the Pope one day saying, well, yeah, maybe we'll ordain women. Oh, no, I got a new idea. Maybe we'll do this. Maybe, And you go, wait, wait a minute. The Pope has never done something like this before. That's what's going on with the presidency of the United States. That being said, how long can the world, world leaders, world business leaders, just say, well, you know what, he's driving, we just have to take, we just have to sit in the back seat and go to where he takes us. Uh, At the end of the day, uh, we can ignore him, we can ignore the rhetoric, but he's still pushing some buttons that's that's creating reaction. He sure is. Now, let me just give you another example. I spoke to somebody from DeFasco the other day and said, how are these tariffs affecting you? And they said, well, we actually haven't lost any business so far. The American companies who buy steel from us are simply paying the tariffs. Uh, we know there are some competitors in the United States who want to ramp up production, but ramping up production in the, uh, in the steel industry takes a year, a year and a half to do. Um, and there's also a feeling that some of them are not responding because they feel these tariffs have a six- to nine-month life. Why six to nine months? Well, we are facing this thing called a midterm election in the United States. It's going to happen in early November. And there's a pretty good chance that both the House and the Senate will slip from Republican control to Democratic control. There are already uh, senators who have put bills on the floor uh, saying that Trump overstepped his authority with these uh, tariffs, and they want to vote to reverse them. Now, those votes aren't going to win because they're Democrats who put them up there, and the, and the Republicans will overturn them. But in six to nine months, there may not be an opposition uh, to these votes because the Democrats will control things, and they may reverse them. So, again, most of the world is saying, okay, we'll pay these things for the moment, but in six months, nine months, they'll reverse it. Hey, we may even get our money back. Let's just not change because of this. So, Marvin, let's work on that premise that, and, and really, can we? Because nobody ever thought that he would get this far, but let's just assume assume that this time the prediction is correct and he loses uh, the House and the Senate, what what happens from that point moving forward? Does he then become a lame duck president? Sure. I mean, he he would become a lame duck president uh, to a great extent. But also, uh, uh, and I hate to say it to you like this, Donald Trump is not acting as much like a president as he is an emperor. He is, he is issuing these uh, presidential proclamations almost the way a king might, and he's assuming that, because I say so, the rest of the world has to go along. Specifically on tariffs, the president can only get involved in tariffs if there is an imminent national security threat. Otherwise, tariffs and those sorts of things are totally the purview of the House and the Senate. He, in my mind, have overstepped the authority. Now, maybe, maybe... Maybe I can make some kind of an argument that China's uh, trade with the United States creates some kind of a national defense issue. But when it comes to Canada or Germany or India, there is no such thing. There is no looming national security threat. Therefore, 
he, he's doing this on a false premise. And, and I have been wanting to see, I've, I have been hoping to see that the Senate and the House would step up and say to him, sir, your logic here is flawed and we're going to rein you in. But because they're all from the same party, they seem to have been giving him an extra run. I, I don't think the Democrats are about to do that. They'll pull him in, put him on a tight leash. Don't you, considering what we're talking about right now, you'd think Republicans would be working harder to get something done before that happens. Yes, and so this again is one of the funny things. They watched the public relations debacle, which was this uh, separation of the children yeah. from the immigrants, and they said, yeah, you know, in a way it's our own fault because we've been talking about immigration reform for a while. So they've got this head of steam now to say, well, while we've still got the House and the Senate, let's pass immigration reform. Let's sort this out. Remember, there's the, you have these nice terms. There's the dreamers, and there's the this and the yeah. that. Let's get this sorted out. In fact, Trump told them to get this sorted out, but they hadn't been doing it. And now he's, of course, saying, no, don't worry about it. It's fine. Don't do it. But you know, I think they could make a head of steam on this and then solve the problem. Really, again, in the United States, there are three branches. There's the executive branch, which is the president. There's the House and the Senate. And then there's the judiciary the Supreme Court, they balance each other out. They have to work together. And for the moment, we've had an executive branch run wild, and we've had the, the uh, uh, legislative branch, which is the House and the Senate, not really pulling their weight. I'd love to see them do something before their uh, uh, term ends. So after those midterms, is it rhetoric without a sword? It could be. It very well could be. Uh, because how do we, how does, I mean, we all know what we're going through on a daily, weekly basis now in, in the first part of this uh, presidency. How, will you, how would you compare or, or, or predict the second half? Well, let me even take a more extreme case. You know, if Donald Trump were to react to trying to be reined in by even getting more extreme in some of the things he says, then there's also the looming question of impeachment. And if this president uh, starts to really abrogate his authority, really go beyond the bounds of his authority, I could even imagine that happening in the second term, or at least a hearing, a process begun, which would again make the president very impotent on the world stage. To me, uh, I I don't want that to happen. I just would like to, I hate to say it to you like this, I just want the president to smarten up. You know, It looks like he's going to head out as a court jester, doesn't it? Well, when hasn't he been the court jester? Again, I yeah, don't mean to yeah. be so unkind. No, no, we all you. thought he would change once he yeah. got sworn in, and no. he would act more presidential, and he does not do that. If he would just smarten up and act presidential, be presidential, yeah. think through what you say, take the phone out of your hands at four in the morning and stop <laughs> tweeting, these are really simple things. You would do this to a 15-year-old, this is a man who's in his 70s and just doesn't seem to know better. So smarten up. Uh, I had one financial expert on earlier on this week who basically said uh, he's telling people, keep calm and trade on. Yep. That's exactly the right thing to do. You know, if you like what you're in, it's still going to be a value down the road. I don't think these tariffs are going to be permanent. I, I also think there's a good chance, and again, this may be a beneficiary, if they rein him in and stop with all these tariffs, then he and his administration might focus on getting NAFTA wrapped up. We're going to have a new Mexican president here in about, what is it, seven days, eight days now, July 1st, they're going to announce a new Mexican president, and and that will then give some certainty. We can get back to the negotiating table. We could get this thing wrapped up. He could claim a victory on this, but he has to stop firing off these things to his friends. Could he trigger a crisis before those midterm elections? Oh, yes. Does he have enough control to do that? Well, you know, that's the great thing about Donald Trump is his unpredictability. So, uh, you know, at the moment, uh, what we were most worried about in the first year of Trump's presidency was North Korea, because remember, he was going to use fire and fury to bring Kim Jong-un yeah. to his knees. Now he's hugged him and embraced him and said he's a great guy. And, but that's today. If tomorrow he decided to fire something off, like I'll give you another example. This week, the United States pulled out of the United Nations Human Rights Council. There's only four nations of the United Nations that are not members of the Human Rights Council. Uh, Iran, North Korea, and somebody else in that ballgame. Really? That's the, that's the company you want to be keeping now, Donald? Yeah. I just don't know what the man's next move is. And so, yes, he can cause something. He could, he could fire off something, and quite literally, a, a bomb, a, a test, uh, do a war game somewhere and cause a reaction that was unanticipated. 
And all of this, again, would cause more volatility. And that's why the market is reacting the way it is. They can't predict him. When there's uncertainty, the market creates this volatility. They want things to calm down. It'll be, it'll be interesting to uh, compare the second half to the first half, that's for sure. Marvin Ryder has been with his business professor at Groot School of Business, McMaster University. Marvin, as always, thank you for the time. Have a great weekend. Enjoy the summer and do what Donald Trump does. Go golfing. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. The U.S. president has told his fellow Republicans in Congress to stop wasting their time on immigration legislation. Uh, meanwhile, there are still kids who are being separated or, ha- or who are still separated from their families. And it's fascinating that he's telling the Republicans in Congress to stop wasting their time when, in fact, he was blaming Congress and the Democrats for the fact that the parents were being separated from their kids in the first place. Uh, again, very, very much more bizarre behavior from the president. To talk more about all of this, Claudia Masferrier is with us. Leon, sorry, uh, Claudia Masferrier, Leon, PhD, assistant professor, uh, adjunct professor, Department of Sociology, McGill University, and with us now. Uh, Claudia, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. Hello. Uh, can you give us an update on the, the president's self-inflicted crisis here? Are, are we any further ahead than we were two or three days ago? Uh, I guess it's hard to tell because it's, it's always hard to tell uh, what's next with uh, President Trump. Um, what I can tell you is kind of like what the Mexican perspective is right now. I think there is a general idea that uh, we, I mean, we do not believe that this... Um, back up will actually make any changes. I think it's uh, more of political pressure and political divisions between the Democrats and, and Republicans. And it, I mean, this is very, very unfortunate because, as you said, kids and families are suffering right now. Um, but it does show up that um, he has uh, internal issues that are affecting abroad, um, both in Mexico and, and, and in other places, right, in Central America. Uh, he tweets, Republicans should stop wasting their time on immigration until we, ha- until we elect more senators and congressmen and women in November. Dems are just playing games, have no intention of doing anything to solve this decades-old problem. We can pass great legislation after the red wave. He already yes. has a majority. So right. what... W- it seems that he is saying when things are white that they're black and vice versa. Is this is are, are Americans buying this? <laughs> I mean, he it's he 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 wants to win the next election, right? And I mean that that's yeah. not, that's for sure. Um, and it's true that there is majority right now, but it's unclear what's going to happen. And it's also unclear what's going to happen with the other. Um, with the other initiatives that he has. So I guess uh, the question is, that, I mean, to what extent he will be able to use immigration issues as, um, as, a, as a money, I mean, as an exchange for other initiatives he has and other policies. Um, he has always, since the campaign, um, used the wall and other, um, <laughs> I mean, the travel ban and other immigration um, policies to, to distract also from, from other things that he has been doing. Uh, and always, um, I mean, I'm, I'm in Mexico City right now, right? So he's always been um, trying to, to tell us what, uh, what to do and what not to do. But I think it is, it is interesting that all of this is happening also in, in when the NAFTA negotiations are, are, are kind of slow and, and right now having, mm. I mean, struggling, right? Both because of Canada and Mexico. Um, not necessarily accepting all, everything what he says. So I think it is very unfortunate that, again, immigration issues are in the middle of, of policies and politics. And uh, the posit- on the positive side, I would, I would say that uh, because of the very cruel and inhumane actions uh, of family separation that he, he enacted, the media and the international community has been looking at practices that were occurring before. Hmm. So I think uh, for us in Mexico City, what is important to highlight as well is that family separation is not a new phenomenon. Um, it is true that... Um, Kids were not detained separately from their parents, but kids are separated from the parents every day with the number of deportations that happen, not only of Mexicans, but of Central Americans, but also from other places in the, in the world. You're talking about being in Mexico City. 
what's the attitude like towards this president? How, how do they feel about him? I mean, <laughs> I, I, I think it is a similar feeling. Uh, first, we were not... We, I think people in general never believed that he would do things that he is doing. Uh, and from the beginning, we were very scared uh, when he arrived about the possibility possible actions that he could and uh, start he was very open against mexicans and i mean the visit in mexico was very unfortunate but i think we have also been very critical about our own government and the actions that they they have put in place so specifically for the for the situation we are living now and and of detention and separation of families uh, it was not until two days ago when the Ministry of Foreign Affairs actually responded and very, I mean, very uh, moderately about the actions that President Trump was doing. Uh, but I think there is no re- no idea of how we are going to provide asylum or refugee status for people. I mean, looking for protection, for example. So again, it's it's optimistic in the sense that we academics have been calling the attention of about this lack of policy for protection for many years, but now it's clear that we need to attend this. Um, and also the violations of human rights against migrants in transit um, have been happening for many, many years. So now we again are uh, calling for an action to the Mexican government about um, how we're going to protect the migrants from abroad, but also that go through the Mexi- through the country. Obviously, uh, upcom- uh, obviously, a Mexican election coming very soon. How is that going to change any of this? Do you you anticipate well, much change? It is very complicated. Again, the elections uh, in the two countries are are, are complicating the whole situation. Again, NAFTA and other negotiations and economic factors are definitely uh, very complicated. Um, we had a, a debate. Uh, well, we had three debates here in Mexico, and the second debate was devoted for immigration and foreign affairs, foreign affairs in Mexico. And none of the candidates show any any good knowledge about the issues and less so any proposals about how to change the immigration phenomenon in Mexico. So it was very sad uh, in that sense. Uh, I really hope that um, from the academia, but also from other um, social organizations, uh, now it is it can be an opportunity for the new government to actually attend these issues. I think there will be more pressure than before, um, but it's going to be in the middle of many other issues that the next uh, administration will have to face. Claudia Masferrier-Leon has been with us, PhD, Assistant Professor, Adjunct Professor, Department of Sociology, McGill University, currently in Mexico. Claudia, uh, oh, sorry, Um, I'm sorry, we're going to keep going here for a couple more seconds. Um, Where is this problem going? Like The statement from the president and his tweet was, uh, that Congress should just leave this alone until after the midterms. Is he just mm-hmm. hoping this all goes away? I mean, once these images have been released, uh, where is this going from here, do you think? I think, I mean, he likes the media. So he will, I mean, I'm, uh, maybe he'll try to reunite the family. But, I mean, so far, with um, with his measure, there is no practical ways of actually um, making families to be reunited. Uh, the problem is that many, in many cases, kids were separated, and I mean, sometimes the parents were over deported, but in other cases, it's very unclear where the parents are. So even if, if he said, okay, let's stop all of this mess, um, it is very unclear how he's going to fix it. Uh, and that doesn't, I mean, it is possible also that in the future he he comes back to his um, to his practices. Um, so I think I mean enforcement will continue, um, and even if I mean again even if kids are not separated from their families upon detention, uh, enforcement will will keep up, and deportations will remain in place. At the um, end at the end of the day, where is he going to put all of these people? Well, it is a big, I mean, we, we know that, uh, detention both, um, in, I mean, for, for immigrants, but also for incarceration in general is a big business. So, it, I mean, it is unclear. Um, I mean, he can always start, uh, putting more people in, in, in places. Um, I think what's interesting is that we need to think what's the origin of this 
migration. Um, yeah. So it is not, it's not something new, right? But Claudia, but Claudia, when, you know, Claudia, you bring up a very, very, very valid point. Uh, here we are. Like, if everybody, if large groups of the population leave one area of the world and come to another, I mean, it not only do, do, does, it, does it affect the, uh, the destination, it affects the place of origin. In the end, what we have to do is somehow correct the turmoil so these people don't have to leave their home countries. How do we do that when, whenever we get into some sort of conflict, immediately we go in, we do what we have to do, and then we get the heck out? Do we not need a world plan here and, and to keep yes, this? You're right. and, and this and needs to be ongoing. And I'm, I'm happy. I mean, I'm happy I, I'm, I'm talking to the Canadian audience because I think that Canada has also... Um, I mean, a place and, and a, I mean, I mean, a voice in all of this, right? So the Central American community in uh, in Canada exists. So there could also, I mean, it, it's not it, it, Canada was very open in 1986 when many Salvadorans were fa- upon, I mean, facing deportation after IRCA. So permanent residents were provided in the U.S. Canadian consulates for all of these people because it was really hard for them to go back to Central America. A Guatemalan population was also granted refugee status in the 1980s and 1990s. And, I mean, there is a strong community, but we are not seeing any voices from the Canadian refugee advocates to actually make these people come. When the Haitians uh, last year arrived to, to Canada, after the TPS was um, was I mean was in danger, uh, the the response was was not very open from the Canadian uh, government. So I think uh, here in Mexico again we are not finding ways of providing this protection or this uh, uh, resident status for Haitians that are already arriving or for other Central Americans. Uh, so the idea I think part of the problem is that we always thought that the place for them like their destination was the United States. In Mexico, we always thought that these populations were populations in transit. Um, but the truth is that since the 1990s, uh, Central Americans arrived to Mexico. They, when they saw that there were no opportunities, they went to the United States, and then they moved north in search of protection, and they established communities there as well. So I think, I, I think it's, it, it calls for a more regional perspective about all of these issues of immigration. Do we have to accept that war may never be over and as a world uh, as world leaders that, that we have to constantly work to stop these problems from coming up wherever they are in the world? I mean, nobody wants to interfere with other people's business, but here's a great <laughs> example of what happens when yeah. we don't. I think, uh, I mean, I guess the problem is that conflict appears everywhere, right? So, um, of course, it would be very good to to <laughs> to, to eradicate that. Um, but I think, I mean, Canada and other countries have been very open to Syrian refugees and other refugees. So I guess, I mean, the, my only question would be, okay, we need to rethink uh, who are we are going to grant protection. And and I think that Canada, in that way, I, I mean, in this discussion, has a has a great position uh, because we, I mean, we have showed that. Um, that we can open uh, our country for many and really uh, give protection. Uh, now, finishing conflict in the world—that—that's a very uh, like a whole other discussion. And you know, obviously, uh, obviously, important. you know, yeah, world peace—that's quite a vision, and good luck with that. <laughs> but at the end of the day, you know, if these situations are left to simmer, I mean, you could say the same thing about Syria. I mean, look what's happening. And and at the end of the day, these people would rather be in their own home than trudging across countries looking for a place to start anew. Yeah, and, and I mean, I guess that the another, I mean, an additional problem in the case of Central America is that many of these children, many of these minors, if you remember the crisis in 2014, uh, the large number of unaccompanied minors was, I mean, I mean, really, really shocking. But all of this is family reunification. Um, the, many of their parents are in the United States because they left many years ago, and now they're trying to reunite with their families. Um, all of these kids are try, are getting out of context of violence and homicides, and they're really trying to escape also uh, uh, drug-related violence and uh, gang-related violence. So um, it's not necessarily children that are migrating for the first time they're going they, they want to go back to their parents and the parents maybe want would, would like to go back to their countries of origin but they cannot um, and the 
border enforcement that has been taking place also protruded them from going back and forth to visit their family, to visit their children. So this is all part of like a larger immigration policy effect that uh, has been taking place uh, for many years now, since, uh, since the 1980s when after IRCA, uh, you, the United States started to increase enforcement. Uh, you know, we saw those images of the, the kids that had been separated in those cages along the border of, of U.S. And, and Mexico. Are we going to keep seeing images like that? Is this going away? Because obviously uh, it takes something like that in order to change the direction of this. We saw what happened when Ivanka and Melania spoke up. I mean, that's what <laughs> yeah. seemed to change, you know, Donald's mind here. Uh, what about those images? How much of an impact does that have? Are we going to see more of that? I hope we don't see more if that doesn't happen. I hope we see them if, if that continues to happen. I think here it is very important to highlight that the international community, the media, um, and uh, when, when I say the international community, it's also international organizations that he has been trying to, <laughs> to not uh, respond to. But I think it's very important for everyone to see. So I, I hope that if, if these actions happen, that they are somehow documented. Um, I hope that uh, we don't forget about what's happening and we just said, okay, President Trump uh, sent this order so everything is over. And I think, I think that that would be a very, be, very big mistake. Uh, but definitely I hope that uh, this, is not, this does not continue, right? Um, now again, it's, it's, it's weird and it's complicated because there's still discussions about the world, there's still discussions about different travel bans, there's different discussions about um, what's going to happen with dreamers, with undocumented population. So I think there are many, many, many uh, things on the table right now, and he's going to try to negotiate um, what he gets out of it. What, where do you think the wall is in this discussion? Some have said that this was all about getting the wall built. Do you think that's the case here? Well, he wants budget for um, not building the wall because the wall already exists, but uh, to making a more mediatic, larger, visible uh, wall. What do you I mean? Think, explain that because you know a, a lot of people don't even understand what this is about. Yeah. So well, you, talk, you talk see, about that a wall that see, talk about the wall. There, I mean, it's nothing like the 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 border when you drive from uh, from New York to Montreal or right. from. I mean, nothing like that. It is already in um, even like five different types of fences that are under uh, electronic surveillance all the time. Um, plus uh, border patrol agents, again, all over the border. And there are places where, I mean, the fences are uh, five meters high. Right. And with, I mean, security, electrified, and so on. So it's not, and, and good technology. And there has been a lot of investment of in the border since 1996. So it's not something new in the sense of, oh, let's kind of build a wall that's going to divide uh, the two countries. That already exists. Um, but he... He has argued constantly that this is not stopping immigration. And it's true that border apprehensions have continued, but we are at the lowest point since 1967. Yeah, that's a valid point, too. So, I mean, the apprehensions have been at the lowest. Uh, Still, it's true, people are apprehended at the border, most... uh, more from Central America than from Mexico. So we do see that uh, this emigration from Mexico has been Mm. at the lowest. Um, Go ahead. No, no, no. But I mean, I think, uh, I I guess the wall, I mean, his whole proposal comes very late. We're not in a moment of large immigration. And we do not think that this will be the case in any case. I mean, the demographic pressures and other uh, other indicators will tell us that this is not going to happen. Let me ask you this. By the time the midterms roll around, is this all a moot point? Do we have a lame duck president on our hands and Congress will stop all of this? I don't know. I, 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 <laughs> it's very hard to tell I what's know. going to happen. I think that, I mean, many people thought that Trump was not going to exactly, be elected, and yeah, he arrived. Yeah, so yeah. I, I yeah. mean, I, I you don't, don't know. know. I, I really hope that, I mean, I really hope that the, the American society and American people and voters and everybody just, like, rethinks what he's able to do. Uh, I think, unfortunately, we have not seen everything that he could do in the next term hmm, good um, if he is validated by the fact that he's having a re-election, right? So I think that 
we we might say, oh, it has not been as bad as we thought. <laughs> um, I'm being ironic, but I mean, it can be it can get really really worse, right? Um, for me, I mean, the U.S. pulling out of the UN Human Rights Commission uh, is just, I mean, and and the whole discussions about the G7 group and everything is just showing that he really really has. Uh, at, at the end, he has a lot of power and he wants to show out. Claudia uh, Masferrer, Leon has been with us, PhD assistant professor, adjunct professor, Department of Sociology, McGill University, out of Mexico City. Claudia, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We've talked uh, lots, of course, over the uh, over way too long. Uh, about the life and times of Dellen Millard and the people that uh, he took along the way in his bizarre journey uh, through life. Of course, with uh, the killing of Tim Bosma, uh, Laura Babcock, and now he is standing trial for the death of his father, Wayne Millard. Originally, this thought to be a suicide, but since the Bosma and Babcock cases, uh, obviously, police have re-examined this, and uh, now he is standing trial for, in fact, the killing of his father, Wayne Millard. To get an update on all of this, it's interesting how this this case hasn't drawn the attention that the first two uh, have. Let's bring in Ari Goldkind, Toronto defense lawyer, and he is with us now. Thanks, Ari, for taking the time. We appreciate this. Pleasure to be on with you, Scott. Uh, uh, let's start with uh, h- how come, why do you think this case hasn't drawn the attention that the other two have? Uh, I think, first of all, the first one drew, drew more attention than the second, and it's interesting because I've covered all three. The first one, uh, coverage, media coverage, every minute of every day in the trial in Hamilton, which is interesting because that's not even the uh, Toronto area, no bias to anywhere else. The second one got some coverage at different points of the trial, highlights, and then obviously the verdict. And the third one has had coverage on the first day, and then it's dwindled just to set that up. I think there's two things in play there. One, most reasonable people have a view of the case of the third one, and every time I talk about it, a lot of heads nod, which is this isn't really just a case about Dell and Millard and the fact that, you know, I believe he killed his father, you might believe he killed his father. The real story here is how the police butchered, and I use that term absolutely purposefully, the investigation into Wayne Millard's death. In my respectful view, it did not receive the attention, the care, that uh, a scene like that, a homicide scene, a suicide scene should lead to. And I can tell you, Scott, before I get to the second reason it hasn't drawn the attention, is that a lot of people have come into the courtroom in the last three weeks and essentially talked about just how cavalier, for lack of a better term, and bungled that scene was. The second, much quicker answer to the question is, we live in a society that has the attention span of a two-year-old child. And if it doesn't involve a Kardashian... People get fatigued, and at some point, people are tired about hearing about Millard or anything that isn't a new pop-up on their phone. Is it this trial that is revealing how shoddy this initial investigation was? It is, but I'll tell you something. You know, you and I might have talked about this a couple months ago, which is, let's forget the trial even started. What does it say to your listeners throughout Ontario? Let's let's work this through for a second, because to me, it's the part that fascinates way more than the Dell and Millard angle about it. You have police coming into a scene where a man has been shot through the eye. Now, you know, and I know, that nobody commits suicide that way. When I say nobody, by the way, I mean actually nobody. It's not some hyperbole. They completely get this wrong. They act in a very lazy fashion in terms of investigating this back in 2012. And they all go about, essentially, and I'm being somewhat facetious here, continue on about their evening and go back to their respective Netflix and dinners. That should concern people on its face when the Crown Attorney, after finding out Millard is a notorious, sickening serial killer, then goes back and takes a peek and says, oh, I'm sorry, the dog ate our homework two years ago. Maybe this guy murdered Dad. And to me, if you're a person who isn't the, the, the loved one of somebody who is a serial killer like uh, Dylan Millard, or isn't a person of means. What does it say that somebody could get away with sort of a perfect crime? Hmm. I just think until this came to light, Scott, Wayne Millard was probably spinning in his grave 
like a centrifuge, assuming people do actually spin in their grave. Didn't we see the same thing, though, with the Babcock case? I mean, the same comments could have been made there. A hundred percent true. And that, that but, but see, this is the difference, Scott. That part doesn't bother me because, and now we'll flip this on its head. Dellen Millard was very skilled at what he did. And a lot of people don't accept that. The same as if Bruce MacArthur is guilty, the, the gay serial killer in Toronto. If he is guilty of it, he was very skilled to get away with it. My problem, Scott, is when the police, the pathologist, the autopsy, the coroner's reports are also stupidly, stupidly wrong. That concerns me not only as a taxpayer, because I pay quite a few bucks in taxes. It concerns me that people didn't put the maximum effort in here to an actual murder scene. Again, I emphasize this, Scott, where somebody is shot at extraordinarily close range. Imagine if Mr. Millard was killed by his son. The fear and horror going through his mind as the tip of that revolver blew his eye out. I mean, I just, that's the part that bothers me. Was uh, was Dallin Millard skilled in the death of his father then? Because it appears now, after further investigation, that this was full of holes. It wasn't so much how clever Dallin Millard was, but how uh, ineffective the investigation was. And that continues, because you want to hear the development that just happened this morning? Because this is unbelievable, and I think <laughs> a lot of your listeners may not know this yet, because hopefully they're not looking at their phones while working or driving. And it is this. Dellen Millard might walk on this one. Now, he's not going to walk from jail, but there has been such a massive screw-up on the Crown Attorney's part this morning that Judge Forrestal, an experienced, respected, and by the way, down-the-middle judge, has essentially excluded one of the biggest components of the Crown's case. Why? Because the police expert who reconstructed the scene and tried to do that stuff we all watch on HBO Mm -hmm. or Netflix to go back, She found him to be biased. She found him to be careless with his notes and in his investigation. And so now the one one witness that the Crown had to say, it's BS and horse manure that Wayne Millard held the gun, shot himself in the eye. That evidence has now all been excluded. The Crown's case is over. The defense did not call witnesses. And it would not shock me at all. Again, he's not getting out of jail. Let's be honest about this. But it would not shock me that he gets an acquittal on this. And going back to my spinning in the grave comment, I now think Wayne Millard is speeding up in that centrifuge. Uh, I was just about to ask you about the bias and the exclusion here. Why is this uh, witness biased? Yes, and the answer is, okay, so let's go through a couple components. Here's the really interesting one. And again, if you're a TV watcher like me, this will ring true to you. One of the biggest things that the criminal law is very careful about, sometimes rightly and sometimes I actually even disagree with it, you don't want to convict somebody of their 10th murder because they've not done nine before. If on the 10th murder, the strongest evidence is not that there's a videotape of them murdering, but it is their track record or history of the nine previous murders. Now, I set that up so people get the atmosphere, but here's what came out in court. Once this police expert came into the case, it's 2014. He knows that Millard is thought to now be the killer of Bosma and Babcock. And what he essentially did is he, again, and this goes right back into our first couple of minutes, didn't do the job in the crime scene, didn't take note of blood in certain spots, came to conclusions. And the defense lawyer, I say, by the way, did a very good job. He came to conclusions that didn't involve taking into account what are called exculpatory or innocent explanations. And when you're a police officer and you're supposed to be giving unbiased, sort of unfiltered opinions, the second a defense lawyer like me or any of the great lawyers in Ontario can show, well, wait a minute, you didn't exclude in your opinion, you didn't include in your opinion, These following three, four factors, and the judge pointed out to the big one, which was blood in the room, and it ties into gunshot residue. I won't bore you with the details, but the judge completely kicked his evidence today, but for a couple peripheral points that are of no moment. So what is left then? What does that mean moving forward? You you said you wouldn't be surprised if he walks on this one. Oh, I would not be surprised at all, and here's why. And again, going right back to the euphemism of TV. Everybody knows the phrase, when there's smoke, there's fire. In a courtroom, that's not enough. And I can tell you, even with what's left in the case, there's a lot of smoke, Scott. 
There's a botched alibi. There's a witness that says he slips out in the middle of the night at the time to go do this. The cell phone records track him going to his dad. He sends bizarre texts. And the most important one is his DNA is on the, mur- is on the weapon, the gun that's left next to dad's body. However, a judge really has to be very careful here, even though it's Dellen Millard. To, if you took out the fact that this is Dellen Millard and you were left with just this is Joe Blow, this right. is Scott Thompson, Ari mm-hmm. Goldkind, Listener 101, a judge would be very, very careful that you cannot necessarily connect the dots without a witness to come and say this actually couldn't have been a suicide, it must have been a homicide. So for those reasons, I could very easily see an acquittal. So there isn't enough evidence with uh, without uh, there isn't enough evidence without this testimony of this biased apparently biased uh, expert to convict him well there may be I mean she's a judge and in all fairness I'm not and she's an experienced judge but what is going to be extraordinarily important here and again I flag this Scott he's not getting out of jail yeah, yeah. But what's going to be extraordinarily important here to the judge is she's got to strenuous and by the way this is why it went judge alone it's not with a jury and remember First-degree murders are always with a jury. This is a rare outlier. She's got to disabuse her mind of the fact that she knows that the man sitting in front of her, you want to finish this sentence because you can finish it just as good as I can, just as well as I can. Obviously, she can't hold hold his past in in any regard for a decision. And and if you don't have that, does the case still stand on its own two feet? And that's where the factors that I've just mentioned, there's a few others, but I'm just shortening it for time. That's where those circumstantial factors certainly suggest something very hinky. But I think, Scott, that, and it won't be talked about, my voice will carry no weight. We have inquiries in this province into all sorts of stupid things that are politically correct and have no business taking up $3 million of taxpayer money. This, to me, this decision to go from a suicide when you dig into the weeds as I have about what happened in this investigation, leaving him to be a suicide victim, and then this change to a homicide, that's probably more pertinent to the citizens of this province than anything that happens to that killer. So this is less about whether Millard is guilty or innocent and more about the investigation that was or wasn't done. I think so, Scott. And if you give me 30 seconds, I think a lot of your listeners will remember the murder of Barry and Honey Sherman in Toronto. That's the Apotex billionaire. And for weeks and weeks and weeks, the police come out and say, Barry killed Honey. Now, imagine if Barry didn't kill Honey, the spinning in the graves going on. But because they're billionaires, they go out and hire their own team, their own ex-cops, their own pathologist, their own autopsy. And that position, that ability to pay for all of this, actually makes the Toronto Police Service say, you know what, upon reflection, Barry didn't kill anybody. Both of these two people were killed by an outside person. That isn't the way, in my view, Scott, policing should work, that it depends on resources or who you draw that night that comes to your house. Hmm. Everybody in this province, Scott, deserves 102% of people's ability not 89.8%. Uh, on the Sherman case, what does your gut tell you? Where's that going? Absolutely nowhere. In my view, that person has absolutely gotten away with a perfect murder. I think that's a Gwyneth Paltrow movie, maybe. But in any event, I really do think they've gotten away with it. I think they're probably long gone, even if a DNA hit. This, to me, was an unbelievably meticulously planned, straight out of Crime 101, how to get away with murder uh, thing. And the longer, as you know, Scott, and I think a lot of people know, the longer that a case goes, the less likely it is to find somebody, which is why the term cold case is a well-known cliche. Uh, Will this investigation come to a close, do you think, or will it be open forever? I don't think so. I think it will be open forever. I think to the police's credit, I think they know that there is a lot of egg on their face here. They have some egg on their face for MacArthur. So given that we have a $1.2, $1.3 billion budget, it wouldn't surprise me if at least every year a few hundred grand of that money goes to finding the killing of two people. By the way, Scott, just so people have the context, that were very, very important people in this province philanthropically, you know, these were not two gangbangers that were killed in their house. Mm-hmm. And in my view, and that is a different thing, these people do not deserve to have the police let this go cold. That being said, Scott, 
as we know even in MacArthur, the gay serial killer case, sometimes crimes happen and we just don't get the person. Uh, Do you think in this case, the Sherman case, that investigators know but they can't prove, or do you think they have no idea? I would say the latter. I think they have no idea because if you even have a reasonable uh, suspicion, a reasonable prospect, you are going to do everything you can to at least lay the handcuffs on somebody or put out even an Interpol warrant. That is not happening. I'd like to be wrong, Scott. Don't get me wrong. If any, I would yeah. like to be wrong, but in my view, this case has gone cold. So uh, getting back to Millard, the Millard case, what's next? Yeah. What happens with this case moving forward? So this has gone over for the Crown to, to, the, uh, to Monday. The Crown, because Millard didn't, I emphasize this, didn't choose to testify. And I, and I think the irony is rich here, because remember, Scott, in Babcock, he played his own lawyer. Yeah. Asking these insulting, disgusting questions to Miss Babcock's father, suggesting that Miss Babcock's off in Cancun at Club Med, which I was surprised the father didn't come over the thing and kill him. Mm. That being said, isn't it interesting that in all three trials, when it's his turn to testify, he declined? Now, that's his right. No accused has to testify. But the irony of that is rich. Because he doesn't testify, the Crown goes first in their closing. Then the defense will go Monday afternoon, maybe into Tuesday morning. Then Judge Forstel will retire. And I don't mean retire the way Mm -hmm. most of us think it. She will take her time. And because it's a judge, Scott, and this is very interesting, too. A lot of people don't know this. When a jury makes a decision, they come back in the room and say guilty or not guilty. Then everybody goes home 14 seconds later. Judge Forstel has to write a lengthy, and I emphasize this, Scott, lengthy written decision capable of court of appeal scrutiny if either side doesn't like the decision she comes up with. Hmm. Would he, would Millard have testified either way, whether the Crown's case was stronger or weaker? Would he have, would we have seen him testify either way in this? I have no inside baseball knowledge of that, but given the court breaks where the lawyer kept going back to the cells to ascertain instructions, because Scott, you should know, is that it's not up to the lawyer. I'm a criminal defense lawyer. I can't tell a client to plead. I can give them my advice. I can tell them they'd be an idiot or a fool to testify or not testify. But this was Millard's uh, chance. I have a feeling that him testifying was possible because I still think he likes the spotlight. Mm. But once that evidence was kicked from that reconstructionist expert, there was literally no reason for him to get in the box because he couldn't undo anything that was already there. Ari Goldkind has been with us, Toronto defense lawyer, of course, giving us an update on the case involving Wayne Millard's death and his son, Dylan Millard, charged now in that murder. Ari, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Have a great weekend. You too. My pleasure. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.